Hello and welcome to a brand new episode of Slowdown. Today I'm absolutely delighted to be joined by the Director of High Performance at Orlando, Mr. David Cosgrave. Dave, big warm welcome back to the show. Connor, it's great to have my second visit to the Lowdown. Second so, visit and first time to Miami. Yeah, it's great. Thanks. I'm at Soccer X with you now, having a great time. Yeah. Um, but thanks for the opportunity to get back on the Lowdown. No, any time. I think uh, there's a lot of demand to get you back on, especially, I believe, it was just at the start of your stint in Orlando of March 2022 last year, if I don't recall. But anyways, I'll tell you one thing. I was walking along that waterfront this morning. It reminded me <laughs> much like Salt Hill at home. Yeah, yeah. I spent a lot of time in Galway growing up, so... Uh, it's pretty windy here. It's not. It's the shun, uh, sunshine state, but it's not so sunny today. So tell us, I mean, how have you found the last few days here at SoccerX? Uh, it's so interesting uh, here with all these industry experts at SoccerX. Uh, the messy effect is in full effect, yeah. maybe too much effect. Uh, it's on everybody's lips and everybody's talking about it. So it's quite interesting, but it seems that uh, Miami is the global destination now. And um, U.S. soccer yeah. is going to be the, the place to be for the next couple of years. And then even up to LA uh, games, there's going to be you know big hype around everything in the United States for the next few years. So it seems like this is the place to be right now. And has there been any speeches thus far that have whet the appetite? Um, it was interesting talking to Don Garber, um, and one of the executives from Apple, just talking about how they're innovating all the time uh, with their 360 um, program. So that was really interesting. Um, and then yesterday, listening to uh, Tom Bogart talking yeah. about how he gets his scoops from uh, all the transfer news. That was very interesting as well, so enjoyed that. Tom is uh, another requested guest actually here on the lowdown, so I'll have to make the connect with him soon. And yeah. maybe maybe now Miami's right time to get him on, Dave, yeah, who yeah. knows. But um, anyways, I mean, like we record here during the international break, middle of soccer X, of course, right in the interlude of the MLS playoffs. Yeah. What a season it's been for you guys up there in Orlando. Yeah, we're the team nobody wants to play right now. We're, yeah. we're the road warriors. <laughs> What's that, what's that Spanish phrase that you guys had? Um, find a way. Find a way. Yeah, find a way. Um, and it's from uh, our coach, uh, Oscar Perea. I think he's got probably um, 500 games um, in the MLS, or coming up to 500 games. Played 250 himself. Absolutely crazy. Um, and he had a great period in Dallas where they nearly won everything. Um, and his, uh, his, he said to his teams, uh, Busca la forma, we have to find a way. So, you know, it's part of his principles and his identity. It's really interesting to see how it works. Um, and that's been a, so it's been refreshing watching how teams try and problem solve um, because you know it's difficult uh, to play in Florida the the climate uh, it's like you know you suffer so when you're out there and you're basically trying to find a way you know you're battling yourself you're battling the climate uh, you're battling the humidity uh, you're also battling like really good teams you know, there's some really good teams that visit us here on the east so, um, yeah, uh, watching him work has been like a, a real eye-opener for me. I think that's an interesting one too, Perea, the leader, because, I mean, we were at the last regular game of the season, Yanni and myself, TFC versus Orlando, and, you know, the cold Toronto winter air is beginning to settle into BMO Stadium that night, but you could feel the warmth from the, from the Orlando players and the warmth of Oscar Perea indeed, just little touch points during the game. Obviously, a game landmarked by uh, Maguire's Galazzo, but... Uh, there seems to be such and this unstoppable, unshakable momentum that you guys have at the moment. Yeah, there's something crazy about the momentum mm. we have. And the word we use to describe it is consistency. So focusing on little details, focusing on, you know, showing up. And consistency is really, you know, the boring word for motivation. Are you motivated? And the players, the playing group from like 1 to 11, from uh, 11 to 16, and from 16 all the way to the end of the roster, they're all so committed 
to Oscar and the coaches, but they're committed to each other. Like it's the team dynamics within the dressing room, never seen anything like it. So there is a chance, you know, that they're so committed and they actually like each other so much that they could do something special because it's hard. You know, it's hard to win the MLS and it's hard to win the East. You know, we're the second team in the East and we have home field advantage. And when we go on the road, it seems nobody can beat us. So we have 10 road wins this year, which is huge. I think it's 1.85 points per game. Um, and we were just scalping everybody on the road, it became road warriors. So there's something special in the dressing room that you can bottle. And Oscar has it and his coaches have it and the players, like they're, they're so committed to him. And they do everything with consistency. I know it's boring, mm. but they're consistent. It's little details. So it's been great to watch over the last two years, this group become you know, consistent in everything they do. Yeah, because like it's really the basics of which you laid a foundation to achieve buy-in as well. And it's not only obviously due to Oscar, due to the players, like there's a whole cast of support and staff, including yourself. What I'm curious to learn is, obviously, it's been a while since we spoke, March 2022. In fact, August 2022 is kindly invited to spend a few wonderful days, and I have to say, at Orlando, meeting Alexa Caleb, yourself, yeah. uh, Ricardo Morera, the yeah. TD down there, fantastic guy, Ricardo. But obviously, since then, I mean, it's been landmarked by an MLS Open Cup drive, the season on the road, 10 away wins, and the playoffs. Now, what have been some key landmarks for you as a staff yeah. in the background? Yeah, so... the. Big moments are believing in something. Mm. So last year we won the US Open Cup. That's the FA Cup to everybody over in Europe. So we won that and all of a sudden the group believed, you know, that they're worthy champions. They did it at home in our stadium. So the community started to believe. So the group believed. Now Oscar and his coaches have won many times before. Some of the guys in the dressing room had won times before. Not everybody had won before. So, you know, all the big managers in Europe, they love to get the first trophy. Mourinho loves to get the first trophy because then the club believes. So that happened back in September. And then, you know, uh, the, the coaches, they get a few new players and they have to mold them early. That's difficult. So we get over a few like bumps in the road in the, in the early part of the year. He gets to pick the same team consistently. Our availability is at 97%. Yeah, I saw that. That's crazy. That's, that right? is, that's not so unprecedented. Unprecedented. For the so travel you're doing as yeah, well. Yeah, so we're doing a lot of traveling. Like, it's 40,000 miles you travel, 97% availability for the year. The staff are doing an unbelievable job. The nutritionist, the chef, the strength and conditioning guys, everybody's doing this amazing job. So everybody's available. So Oscar gets to play the same team that he wants hmm. in the second half of the season. So somewhere in June or July, everything just clicks. Everything. And it's then Duncan Maguire starts banging oh. in loads of goals. I don't know if you've seen his goal in Toronto where he retires Michael Bradley, literally retires him. He's a rookie. He scored uh, maybe 14 goals this season. So yeah. a rookie yeah. scoring 14 goals, that just clicks. Our goalkeeper and the guys in front of him, you know, I think 11 or 12 clean sheets. Our fullbacks are getting high up the pitch. You know, everything clicks. Progressing the ball through the phases and everybody's contributing with goals. Facundo Torres... Our star man, you know, he has a baby, but he still shows up. Our center back has a baby, still shows up. You know, all these new things happening, but everything clicks. And mm. right now, you know, we're in the semifinals. Anything can happen. We have Columbus next. So when everybody's watching this, we've either, you know, got a bloody eye from Columbus <laughs> or we've managed to, you know, get past Columbus, who are an amazing attacking team. So if that happens, you know, we could be in a conference final after last year winning a, you know, a, an FA Cup, uh, US Open Cup. 
You know, what I'm most curious to know more about is, you know, as an outsider, obviously looking in and being involved in the North American climate now, at its best, North American soccer for me, this blue sky vision, it's a can do, a will do mentality. At its worst, at its very, very worst, can be quite transient, quite transactional, quite fleeting, to be honest. But even from the visit I spent with you those few wonderful days in Orlando to just even hear how eloquently you speak about the staff and the players together as one community, that stuff doesn't happen by chance. No, 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 it doesn't happen. So it's a cohesive model, right? Mm. People say, what does that mean, socially cohesive? Everything is about the group, right? So they do this famous barbecue, right, where everybody goes and has barbecue together. But one player pays for it and all the coaches cook it. So the coaches are at service for the players, but for all the staff. So 100 people will rock up, and the coaches, in particular one Hosema, uh, the assistant, he will spend the morning cooking. And then everybody sits down, everybody rocks up, everybody breaks bread together. And it's all about the group, it's all about each other, it's all about breaking bread together. That is intentional, the social cohesiveness. One of the things about social cohesion is that there's always a guy who's a loafer, social loafer. Hmm. He's a passenger on the culture bus. That guy has to show up for socially cohesive things. He has to be there in the group. And we don't have any um, of these guys that sit at the back of the bus. So our dressing room is so strong. There's no alienated guy. There's no guy who's passive. Uh, you know, there's no um, maverick or there's no, uh, I used to call them terrorists. But that's the person who sits at the back of the bus who doesn't get involved in the culture. So in a socially cohesive model where everybody tries to get on with each other, of course there's problems sometimes, uh, but if it's related to tasks, you can usually fix it. But when everybody has to get on, because that's, what, that's the power of the group, it's amazing to watch, but it's all intentional. The head coach and his coaching staff decide that this is how they run the group, and the group reward it with you know strong bonds. It's a very, very strong dressing room. But I would say that too. Like, there's so many touch points informally you know, on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. The training ground design, it actually works in your favour in terms of how intimate it really is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Touch points from all the staff are very important. You know, from the morning, our like, yeah, nutritionist, who's, uh, she, like, she has provides service excellence. Our performance chef, you know, every, all the culture starts with a warm welcome. Um, our uh, ATC, which is a physio, you know, he gets around everybody in the morning to check in with them. Our Spanish-speaking trainers, who are so important, they do a lot of influence and persuasion work, you know, right. building relationships, informal chit-chats, making sure that everybody's aligned before we go out onto the pitch. So the quality of the relationships is so strong, even before we go on the grass, just to check if you're okay, I'm okay. You know, if I know you, you know me, we trust each other, we can, you know, we can um, talk about the difficult things and have micro-conflicts. It's better to have mini micro-conflicts about some process than it is to let, let things build up. So everybody is going around in the morning making sure all those touch points are done, all the staff. It's really, really rewarding because then when we get on the grass, you know, the coaches are in charge, it's their stage, and the staff all step back. That's, it was interesting, the fact, when I was down there, like, not to undervalue your own self, but you know, speaking to others, other fellow staff members of yours down there about yourself, they in fact came back to me as you being the key cultural architect down there, Dave. And for me and you, obviously, we speak about culture. It's a, you know, we speak about it quite profoundly. It's a role close to my heart. It's one which I view currently at FC London up in Canada. So, uh, you know, I've sought guidance from yourself countless times, unbeknownst to yourself or being honest yeah. to yourself. So like you as being this key cultural architect speaking to you about it before, you liken culture to that of an iceberg. Yeah. That's the metaphor you use. Could you elaborate a bit more for yeah. the audience? Yeah, so culture as an iceberg is an interesting thing. Pippa Grange, um, who worked with England and Write the Dream, she taught me a lot of things about culture. Mm. Um, and if you imagine culture as a competitive advantage, 
right? Everybody has got slogans on the wall and everybody has got their vision and mission stuff. So everybody can see that as the iceberg above the water, but the real culture happens beneath the waterline. All the things that are not said, all the things that have been endured, all the things like ghosts in the walls. You can probably think of famous clubs that seem to always have problems. They might have ghosts in the walls. So all of that culture happens beneath the waterline. And what you want to do with good culture work is you want to get the iceberg above the waterline so it becomes visible. So culture as a competitive advantage is like you want to clean up the past. You want to find out what's under the waterline. You want to find out what the people say to each other when there's, you know, a water cooler moment or what do people think about on a Sunday night before they go to work on a Monday? That's culture. That's the bit underneath the waterline. And that's the bit that you need to understand when you're like a, a cultural architect. Because you're walking around the floor, you're trying to figure out what's happening, yeah. trying to figure out if people are getting on with each other. Um, and if you don't know what's under the water, then um, you, know, you have a problem. So there's a great exercise uh, called the stinky fish, right? If you, if you can imagine a stinky fish, <laughs> right? Basically, you can smell it, mm. and that can be bad culture. So how do you find out what the stinky fish is? And it's an exercise. You get everybody to sit down and you say, hey, look, what are the things that you're uncertain about? What are the things that worry you the most? What are the things that you don't tell people about this place? What are the things that make you anxious right now about this place? Now, if you can get everybody to write those things down, the stinky fish, right? Now you basically can find out what's beneath the waterline in a business. And then, you know, it can be about rewards or recognition. It can be about performance or progression. It can be about your character and how you fit in a team. It can be that maybe you're sitting in the wrong seat on the bus and you want to go somewhere else. Right? Maybe you need to leave with love. Maybe you need to leave the business or leave the club. That's culture work, trying to understand what goes on beneath the waterline. So mm -hmm. um, the key here is try and get the iceberg above the waterline so it's all visible. And that's an interesting one, not to touch upon the stinky fish analogy. How have you, how have you utilised that in the past season to any competitive advantage of your own at Orlando? Um, well, it's so, we're, we're all on the same page right now that we don't even have to think about it, mm. right? But when I first came over, two years ago, I spent a lot of time just walking around, just getting to know people, because leadership has to be visible. Yeah. Right? You have to be walking, walking the floor, getting to know people, little micro coaching sessions, you know, uh, yeah. warm handshakes, understanding what the standards are in your business, making sure that you are accountable as a leader. So, you know, I'm a follower. I follow my boss, who's Luis Muzi, who's the GM, and I follow Oscar. So I'm a true follower before I'm a leader. So I made sure I was always walking around, getting to know everybody. And then as you walk around, the quality of the relationships get better. You know, yeah. People want to talk to you. They want to open up. They want to tell you what they'd like to do. And we went from a lot of generalists to specialists. So everybody changed seats. People sat on the right parts of the bus for them. We focused on their competencies. We made sure that they were capable in their core role. We made sure everybody was speaking a common language, which was the language of high performance, but Spanish, Latin context with a few Americans thrown in, and some guy from Europe. So I was the outsider. So instead of being you know, the guy that on the same side, size, uh, side as everybody, I was the guy who was the outsider. So we all had to learn how to speak the same common language. Then we figured out, do we all have character that can sustain this really long season? It's 11 months long. You know, it's a really long season because the League mm -hmm. Cup, so can we now you know, 
get through the season together in the trenches and be in competition mode for you know a long period of time that's very hard in high performance it's interesting too right because we mistake culture right as this thing that's either black or white right yeah not necessarily top down bottom up but it's an emergent of things it's yeah. living it's like a verb it's something yeah. that's tangible as you spoke about yeah. you know i'm delighted here there's a latin american influence there's a <laughs> european influence there's even heck an irish influence yeah. there so use what you have and it's something yeah. that emanates it's living it's breathing yeah yeah it culture is the outcome mm. and then we have all beneath the waterline but um pippa grange again she she taught me so much about culture she did so much work with england getting to the 2018 i think world cup um, and she, she followed on from Dan Ashworth yeah. and what it takes to win and Dave Redden and I've used all of those things um, to help build you know, a culture framework um, and there's so many parts to culture there's the story we tell ourselves there's the quality of our relationships how we communicate with each other but also world class standards you know, accountability you know, showing up how we admonish bad behaviour because the, you know, what you resist and what you reward as culture is what you become that's really important because if you resist something that becomes a subculture it's not mm. a wrong culture but it's a subculture and it's usually because that resistant group they're not following a part of where the rest of the club is going so it's important to understand that now do you challenge it do you try and understand it how do you bring it closer to the group you know that's part of culture that's culture work so you have all these things clarity of vision do we all know why we're why we're there and one thing that was really interesting, the power dynamics of a group. In Bolton, sports science, where I came from, sports science became really powerful, so powerful. One later manager decided to dismantle it because he knew it was too powerful. So Bolton became the sports science hub. And like lots of careers came out of Bolton, mm. but it became too powerful for the next generations. So they dismantled it. So that's culture as well. So, you know, should sports science run your culture or should it be a socially cohesive culture or should it be like maybe Toto Wolf win at all costs? Um, uh, um, well, I'm sure it's not win at all costs, but win at cost. <laughs> so, yeah, that's all part of the, you know, the culture framework that we've developed. It's quite interesting. And as you speak about there, I mean, utilizing what you have and also the importance of having a framework, but the, the importance, too, of utilizing past experiences and you've no shortage of those you spoke about Bolton, your time, of course, at Liverpool, Tottenham, Copenhagen, even right to dream that we've all been speaking about. But um, I mean, just for people in the audience listening to this, it, you know, it's pretty incredible. We were at Soccer X yesterday and me and you were just speaking about the Copenhagen Man United game last week, Dave, or last week, Wednesday, Dave. And I was just saying, this is absolutely bloody incredible. I've never seen a Scandinavian fan base this ardent and passionate and fervent in a crowd. But again, to rejog my memory, he says this all started with one guy. Yeah, the, like some amazing things have happened in, in um, Copenhagen. And Incredible. I'm not too sure they get enough credit for what's really happened there. Now, when Stoller Solbakken came back after Wolverhampton, himself and Johan Lange set about you know, rebuilding FC Copenhagen into this thing. Um, I went there in 2014 to maybe 2019-20. Um, we had six European campaigns, uh, six titles, but they set two strategies um, from 2014 and 2019 off. One part of that was to fill the stadium, right? Another part of it was to make Copenhagen a destination in, in global football. Another part was to build FCK talent, all these unbelievable young players coming out of FC Copenhagen who are playing in the Champions League. I don't think they get enough credit for that. But one part of it was to get the fans in the stadium. And it's raucous now. 
and it mm. started with uh, like a fan liaison officer and he managed to get everybody you know into this crazy section it's called section 12 but now it's the destination thing to do in Copenhagen if you're aged between you know 16 and 25 it's wild they have this ticket subscription that's gone through the roof and uh, Mikkel Bier who does the um, tickets and um, the the new CEO like FC Copenhagen are just breaking records everywhere um, and it, you should definitely have a little look inside that wild section 12 and the TIFOs they have Incredible. and when they when they welcome uh, teams there uh, it looks a little bit like uh, you know welcome to hell in Galatasaray but it's an amazing achievement by everybody at FC Copenhagen I'm so proud of the time I spent there but what they're doing is just mind-blowing but for people listening aspiring leaders Dave how important is it for them to understand that in fact you speak about strategies enacted in 2014 2019 and the club rightly is only getting the credit it deserves now, but in fact you repaired it out at the time, planting seeds to trees which yeah. obviously weren't able to see yeah. during yeah. your tenure. Someone has to bring strategy to life. Hmm. Right? It's no good on paper. That's a classic line that everybody uses. And culture eats strategy for breakfast. Those things that people put on the wall. But there's something about FC Copenhagen that's really interesting. The club expects, the city expects, the staff expect. So we talk about ghosts in the wall, but the wall expects, right? So when you're there, you have to raise your level because everybody in the club expects. And there's no, there is pressure there. But one guy, Robert Scove, who uh, scored, I think, 25 goals one, uh, one year, he said to me, pressure is a privilege. And being here as a young player, he came from Silkeborg, he said, the pressure here is a privilege. And that's a way you should look at the pressure. You know, that raises the standards higher. So everybody who goes to work in Copenhagen or everybody who plays there, they automatically know that they have to raise at a level. And that's what we've kind of also done in, um, in Orlando. Nani came over and he raised the level, okay? Mauricio Perea, our captain, came back from uh, Krasnodar and he raised the level. And now young players know they have to meet a level. So, uh, like, I came from, from Europe uh, to Orlando and straight away my standards would be different because I've seen it in some big dressing rooms in England and some big dressing rooms in um, Denmark. Mm -hmm. So you know, having those people walking around the business, so important. Our, um, our business uh, CEO who runs the business, he came from Tampa Bay Lightning. He won a few Stanley, um, Stanley Cups, he had a few rings. He knows the level. Our owners are from the NFL, Minnesota Vikings. See, yeah. They know the level. Um, Luis and Ricardo are two leaders. You know, uh, Ricardo was at um, Columbus, he knows the level. Luis was at Dallas, he won with Oscar, he knows the level. So having all those kind of, it's called a brain trust, mm. having all these experts around who know the level means that everybody has to meet the level. And if you can't meet it, you don't make it. It's interesting though to play devil's advocate, having a brain trust like that, yeah. looks good on paper, can be quite difficult in practice to get everyone aligned and on the same page. What's your role in greasing the wheels on that? Um, well, so, so I'd say my role really is you know, to look after my verticals, to look after my pillars. Mm. You know? If I'm the high performance guy and the medical guy, well, you know, the simple thing is we have to get our tasks right. If we don't get an injury diagnosis nailed on from the start, well, you know, it's going to deviate at the end. So my job is to get the granular details right and then make sure that the, all the staff, they lead it. So they have full autonomy. I make sure that they feel competent and I make sure that there's harmony amongst the groups. It's a very simple model, right? Do you feel like you can make this decision yourself? So I mentor them, they make it themselves. Are they competent? So do I get, I get an expert to mentor them? So we have a sprint mentor, we have a 
rehab mentor, we have a psychology mentor. So all the young staff get mentored by global experts. And then I just make Great. sure they're, it's harmonious, right? So that means that you can have a little bit of a disagreement about SNC, for instance. The pillars of SNC, is it more science or art? So one guy might go, look, it's very scientific. We're going to do this. And another guy, no, it's about this. It's about the art of how we do SNC. So what we do is we then navigate, you know, where do we sit on that continuum for harmony? So everybody can feel like they're included, put their hand up. You know, it's psychological safety. So they feel like they're included. It's safe to, you know, challenge. And, you know, bad behavior is not rewarded under this model. So if you basically don't like science or you don't like art, and you have a hissy fit, well, you know, that's not going to work in the group because the group wants to find um, some resolution and they're happy to have micro conflicts. It's really interesting. Everybody's happy to have a little bit of micro, con micro conflict. Crazy. And I suppose, like, you don't want to be in an environment, as you alluded to there earlier on, where you can't have the conversation about the stinky fish. Yeah. But ultimately, there's a fine line between having micro conflict and enough to burn you. Yeah, yeah, you, you have to get what's left, you know, what's not said, said. Mm. You have to get it said. Somehow you have to get those words out. That comes with trust. So as a leader, you know, if I look after you and I'm credible with my words and I'm authentic, I'm a bit vulnerable myself, I'm willing to make some mistakes and I put my hand up. When we have to make huge calls about big hamstring injuries, we're doing rehab, you're on week eight to ten and yet someone has to put their hand up. I basically sit in big meetings and I say to the manager and the sports director and the head physios, this is my call, I'm accountable, I could be wrong, but this is why I was brought here. So everybody is like, oh, this guy is willing to make a mistake here, so this guy must be vulnerable. Mm. He, I don't know all the answers, but I'm willing you know, to take the fall if it doesn't work out. Now, thankfully, it's not worked. Right. <laughs> thankfully, it's never happened. It's worked pretty well so far. Yeah, so we had, we've, had a, we've had zero re-injuries, right? The rehab is, it, it's really good. Matt Tabiner, Control to Chaos, he's, um, he's guided me, and now he's guiding the staff. He's great. So we've, we've managed to make 100% um, make return to play, no re-injuries, that's great. But ultimately, someone has to you know, be accountable, and that's me. So that level of vulnerability, I hope, helps people when, um, you know, I say, I want you to be autonomous and I'm going to be a guy who's going to back you on every decision you make. I'm going to support you on it and let's do it for the best of the club. Not for yourself. We often worry in a, as medics, we often worry about that someone's going to chastise us for getting an injury wrong. But in our culture, that doesn't happen. Nobody's ever been hung out to dry. Mm. So that's really, really good. That's really good. You know, and speaking of leading by example, yeah. in fact, leveraging culture as a competitive advantage. Yeah. There's been very few organizations such as the esteemed right to dream model in the past few years that have done that in spades. Well, what I'm curious about is to learn more about your own involvement with them because stemming from someone that's been involved in high performance, Premier League, European football, what was it by moving to right to dream and doing some work with them at the time? What gaps were you looking to fill? Um, like Right to Dream is the most unbelievable organization, purposeful organization. Um, and the, the way they're expanding their footprint around the world, you know, it's just, it's amazing to watch. And the work that Tom Vernon mm. is doing and yeah. his, uh, his group around him is amazing. But also the guys in Ghana, um, Eddie and Mishu, who's in, sitting in, um, in Egypt, the work they're doing. And then the functions around them, the business functions that support everything they do. And everybody knows about FC Northland and what they're doing with the academy there. But all those people, what they're doing is just something that's probably not been done 
at this scale before coming as an academy. Man, Man City have done it really well. The City Group have done it really at well. Scale. At scale. At scale. But I was so interested to, after FC Copenhagen, to go and just listen to Tom Vernon about his vision and what he was doing and to meet Pippa Grange and how she was going to support the build out. And I got to immerse myself in their organization for over six months. Um, and um, they showed me, they let me look under the bonnet and it was amazing what I saw and it was a pleasure to work with them and we, we built an amazing report together called the Purpose Report which kind of underpins some of their um, employee support about how do you thrive at work, mm. how do you get better at your craft coaching or whatever you're doing, how do you know yourself better, know self, how do you know your teammate better and how do you get better you know, for the greater good of society yeah, through football. So it's a purposeful organization that plays football. You know, it's rocking the boat. It's looking for excellence. It can be found anywhere. As you know, they're going to San Diego and they're going to try and um, you know, exploit the inefficiencies of the American pay-to-play system and find local talent in San Diego and local talent in um, over the border, which will be a, not a first. I'm sure El Paso have tried it and yeah. Austin have tried it, but they're going to try and really, you know, make San Diego a destination for, you know, for soccer um, and the right to dream model you know i think we know it works now so i'm very excited to see it and zooming out obviously not just incubating tom's on record as saying this too he just doesn't want the legacy and impact to be local to san diego i mean zooming out and having worked with the organization do you think the right to dream model and affiliation with san diego has the potential to revamp american soccer over the coming decade or so uh, well i think American soccer is going to grow exponentially anyway. And yesterday, Don Garber talked about every, you know, every eight to sixteen-year-old now is playing a soccer. Uh, every you know, boy and girl. So in ten years and twenty years, you know, this is going to be a huge market for them. Um, but what Right to Dream are going to do is they're just going to show that you know young players, you know, can come into this system and play meaningful minutes early, maybe before they're twenty, playing a thousand minutes. You know, you become a performance player. Um, I think this might be the first time that the MLS will have like maybe you know a really dominant under 21 player with maybe the sprinkle of a of a DP because over in FC Norseland they're playing without a DP yeah? Yeah. so you know I'm sure they're going to be able to do it in the MLS so just like Philly have you know changed things the way we see things a little bit um, I think they will try that as well over in San Diego. I'm very intrigued to see how the effect long lasting impact that will have on the composition of squad profiles in the MLS which is a look it's a completely another story for a different day but I mean to speak more about Tom himself I mean in fact you said this to me the whole time about before being a leader you must be a good follower yeah. and obviously you putting that into practice in spades at Orlando from just spending again three days there last summer could see the indelible impact of these budding interns coming into the mm -hmm. club the work they were doing so Dave tell me I mean how do you attract the right people into an organization? Yeah, uh, this is, it's a great question, you know, you have to <laughs> tell, dollar one. <laughs> yeah, a million dollar, you, ha you kind of, you have to transmit to the world that you're a purposeful organization. Now, what does that mean, purposeful organization? Think about Patagonia. As soon as they tell the world that they're going to use all of their funds to, you know, buy back mountain ranges, straight away people think, purposeful, that's authentic. When you do something, your actions are credible, you're purposeful, right? So if you can tell you know, the recruitment market that you are a purposeful organization or your high performance department, you know, you know, we're doing some great things together, 
people connect with you and say, hey, look, you know, I'm looking for something like this in my life at the moment. You know, this daily mission that you're always talking about or this vision for your high performance staff. You know, I wouldn't mind getting involved in that. So people write to you all the time and say, hey, I want to come on a journey with you. Now, America is so big, right? <laughs> so it's really, really difficult to attract talent. It's a huge market. But we get like lots of people connecting with us and saying, hey, look, if anything comes up, I'd be really interested in joining. And that's the great thing about building teams. There's only so many seats on the bus. If you can keep the people in your organization and retain them and you can attract talent, right? And then there's a few guys who want to get off the bus. We call that leaving with love. If you can let them leave with love and then maybe they can loop back, you know, then you can build a really great team. And you don't want to have too much churn. You don't have too many people coming and going. So, you know, it's... Uh, retaining and attracting and the war for talent I call it you know th that's all intentional and you have to transmit that to the world to say come and spend some time with us at Orlando and see if we can do something special together it sounds to me as though the game is sometimes unconsciously rigged the wrong way in terms of like we look at the wrong time stratums you know in terms of you know we evaluate it cycle to cycle as you must do in a business of course with yeah. so much money and expense on the line but for me there's a case there of Right, winning purposefully, winning deeply, winning throughout time. Yeah, yeah. So winning deeply is a really, that's an amazing concept. Mm. So, okay, the, the score will look after itself, okay, right? Yeah. But are all of your people thriving? When they're driving, for the stinky fish exercise, when they're driving to work, are they happy? And they're not even thinking about work. When they put their head on their pillow at nighttime and they're not even thinking about work, they're thinking about something, you know, that they elevated or supported or someone they lifted at work. So if you are you know, doing meaningful work and you're getting all your tasks done and it's rewarding and you're not going home to your wife at the end of the day and saying, oh my God, I'm going to kick the cat here. I'm so stressed at work. If none of those things happen, right, then you are a purposeful organization because your people are thriving. They're nourished. You know, we have burnout on one side and we have thriving on the other side. But going past thriving, you can flourish, right? That just means like you're in total flow state and that's yeah. all because of the work you're doing. Now, if you win deep, right? If you win deep, you win more than the score, right? You're growing people. Uh, you're doing great work in the community. You know, you're engaged with everybody within your business and outside your business. And maybe you're making a social impact. You know, maybe you've got a side hustle that's, you know, helping something in the community. That's winning deep, you know? Mm. You know, all your people are benefiting from that. It sounds a bit like CSO or ESG. Yeah. You know, but it's bigger than that because if your people believe that you intentionally believe in them, they won't feel like it's corporate social responsibility thing. They'll think, oh my God, this, this really means something. We're going to win deep here, right? And at the end of the season, if we manage to say, get to the conference final and we have a good season and we look at each other, we're all going to be able to say to each other in Orlando, like, ah, we had a really good go at this, you know? As a group, the band, the brothers, we got together. There's a few moments in Copenhagen dressing rooms when we had the Champions League moments where the group really, really loved each other. And there was a depth to that, right? That's what you're always seeking um, when you're winning deep. Something a bit bigger than the score looking after itself. And is that something that you've been seeking out throughout your entire career? Has it come in spades? Has it been fleeting? Yeah, it's, it comes in moments. Mm. It's just a moment when you stand back and you look at the group and the group all is you know going effortlessly in yeah. one direction it's in flow state you're like wow this this is doing something and then some great things happen maybe a young player like Duncan Maguire scores all these goals you yeah. know that's for the organization that's winning deep maybe the fan engagement goes through the roof and the positive sentiment on Twitter changes and there's a moment where everything shifts 
that's winning deep. Kids are wearing their Orlando or Copenhagen jerseys, you know, going to school. And they're just so happy. You know, that's winning deep. But then the social community bit, like, you know, if you're doing something purposeful out in the community and you're changing people's lives, well, that's like really winning deep. Well, it's not really your job, really, then, Dave. It's not really a director. It's that of an alchemist, really. <laughs> yeah, but remember, I'm just one little small part of, you know, this big machine. And when you step back and you try and make sense of it, there's so many, you know, wicked parts that move. But when you try and make sense of it, you look for those moments because everybody always asks, what happened? What was the thing? Well, yeah. sometimes there isn't a thing, right? But when you sense make, you go back to the organizational structures, the brain trust, the Will family funding this. You look at Facundo Torres, you know, getting, you know, better. You look at the two uh, central midfielders who screen everything, you know. You look at all the things that just happen. Oscar Perea, like, you know, 450 games in the MLS. All those things that are happening, they're the that's the moment amalgamated. So there's not just one moment. So you just step back and you try and make sense of it from the organization all the way down to the granular things. Like our nutritionist, like she's, this is her first year, she was an intern. Like she's come and done an amazing job, right? Working with our performance chef, who's come and changed the full culture of how we all like break bread together. So two people have changed how we all like get on with each other for maybe four hours a day. And that's amazing. So maybe that's the most important part of the season you know mm. maybe that's it but that's just one of the things that you know make these magic moments happen yeah something so small but it speaks volumes about yourself that you're able to kind of identify that in the chaos and of the never-ending treadmill that is football because one of the things that's impressed me the most this week you're speaking of sense making there is obviously we're in the middle of an international break all the bloody world football seems to be here at soccer X, so it's fantastic for key executives to be at these keynote speeches and you know even I was listening to Paul Barber the other day you know CEO of Brighton and he just gave an absolutely fantastic keynote speech with uh, Mark Clement of GIS up in Fort Lauderdale hour and a half 25 key principles behind Brighton's success and it floored me and it astounded me because it's just like this guy is constantly on the treadmill but he's just mm -hmm. executing relentlessly he's on to the next thing but he spoke about how he would get together with his head of HR at Brighton at the end of every week and a traffic light system they have because now at Brighton they don't have problems of scarcity they have problems of abundance because once you have people winning deeply and impacting yeah. within your organisation Dave you'll notice they'll become long sought after so like they have to scorecard the traffic light system where they'll, imp where they'll look at people within the organisation who's at the highest risk of leaving now who's the highest risk of being poached it's amazing if you can yeah. integrate HR into your um, sports performance department right so if you can get your HR angle right I talked a little bit about attracting the right talent or leaving with love but if your HR is embedded in everything you do your people will be happy they'll feel like they're listened to now when I worked in Fulham back in 2010 it was my first exposure to HR it's not like it's it's a bit vanilla HR right but it's mm. not it's so important um, Mr. Fayad he, he owned Harrods so he integrated the HR principles of Harrods into Fulham Football Club. So interesting. I, I think I can still remember the five like values that we had, right? We were confident custodians of the past, right? Johnny Hayes. We were pioneers, so you could take risks. We were action orientated, so you had to, you know, action now. You're in the Premier League. You know, you, you can't wait. You have to survive. Service excellence coming from Harrods. So everything you had to do, you had to deliver it with service excellence. And we were open and inclusive. And I always remember the chef, the groundman, who, no matter who it was, 
they were as valued in the organization as the head coach or the star player. Now, I still remember those HR principles from 2010. It's an amazing journey. And Fulham were very successful because of you know, HR. And then you, know, you talk about Paul Barber and Brighton and HR being embedded with what they do. You know, getting those little details right about people, about people's like, you know, interaction within your business. If you can get that right, you know, I think your people will stick around for a long time. Yeah, and it's again, it just goes back into playing that long term game. But there's something again that comes throughout this podcast with you, and it's getting people in the right seats on the bus because everyone's on the bus, everyone's on the bus within your organizational framework. People will hop off, people yeah. get on. But this concept of changing the seat, yeah, for me, so it's like how do you identify hidden potential within your organization and create structures for opportunity yeah. within that? Yeah, it's, it's a great, it's a great uh, question because people want to move seats themselves. You know, mm. people you know put their hands up and say i want to be at the front of the bus i want to be at the back of the bus so you have to figure that out then what i do is that we do a like a strength assessment of all of our staff in the high performance so we want to find out what you're good at so are you actually facing the task that you're good at so are you in love with it and if you're in love with it it becomes meaningful right so that means no, I want to do something else. I want to expand into SNC. I'm a physio now, but I want to go into SNC. So then we build, you know, a pathway for the year, get qualifications, find a mentor, you know, take on tasks you love in SNC while still being a physio. So the competence stretches, right? The circle of competence stretches. And now what you're doing is you're building people who have got what we call dynamic capabilities. So people used to be an I shape, then they go to a T shape. And then they can go to an X shape. So they can move across all the different um, capabilities that you need in high performance. So an example would be a sports science guy that also does strength, that also knows nutrition, and, and then has gone and done some psychology. Right? So now this person is generally very specialized with dynamic capabilities across all parts of the domain. Now, if you can get a person like that in the right seat, you've got a high performing team. You know, and if you imagine the F1 guys when they're all sitting around trying to do the, the two-second uh, wheel change. So if you have four guys who can do the, the wheel themselves, you know, that's an amazingly powerful um, high-performance team you have. And then if you can get them in the right seats, it's really, really good. So as an organization, you have to be intentional about you know, their careers. You have to support it with headcount, some experts, and uh, some budget for um, individual development plans but then the person has to want to go on the journey themselves, right? And if they want to go on it and it's meaningful and they love the task that's in front of them, well then it should run itself, shouldn't it? I know, it, look. <laughs> it sounds easy. <laughs> it, it does sound easy and I catch your mind back there. Every time you say F1, Dave, I have to say you trigger me because do you remember I was sat on the couch of your house there last year? You speak to me about uh, that drive to survive show on Netflix. Yes. I told you I never watched it before. <laughs> Coming here today, I've seen all five seasons. It's, uh, absolutely incredible show but what strikes me there is this term of service excellence and it's something that you alluded to in the previous podcast and you know you come here today and you I mean for me you're so passionate about your craft like I'm really really hyped and energized learning for me uh, speaking to you each and every time but I mean what are you doing now to even enhance and iterate upon that now uh, yeah so you know we live in the cycles now mm. so I'm in a cycle and so, you know, I'm looking forward to getting to the finishing line. And then, you know, you reflect on what went right and what went wrong. And then there's a model that I use, like it's um, what it takes to win. So how we plan, how we play, who we are, and our identities. 
So I look back on all of those notes that I made for the year of like, you know, how did we plan? How was my relationship with the head coach, with the GM, with the players? How was my, with all my line manager, all the people I line manage? So I check that. How do we play? I don't influence anything to do with how we play football, but I have to know how we're playing because that helps us prepare the team physically, you know, and we have to meet peak game demands. It's a really, really hard league you know, to go for 97 minutes. So I have to understand all of that context. So I look back with the help of experts to go through all of the data for the year to see like, did we, were we ready at the right time? Um, and then I just love reviewing identity work. Like, is our team, does it, does it smell like the manager's team? That's so important and making sure we can support the players to understand what the manager's team and identity should be. Mm. So um, I review all of that. So I love sense making. So I, l I love looking back to see if what we had prepared for, for uh, the year coming is actually working. So I do that and um, that's very rewarding. Now then how do I switch off? Because <laughs> my young family, I, t I take them back to Denmark uh, and we um, become a little Danish family again and that's beautiful and we get to see all of our families that we don't see a lot of. So um, I use that time to uh, reflect, switch off, try and get in nature. And then, um, you know, I always try and plan something with Craig White, who is my kind of spiritual guru mentor. David Clancy speaks yeah. so highly. And so Craig White, yeah. if I can get something in the diary for the next year, then I know myself I'm going to grow emotionally or spiritually. Um, I'm going to become a little bit more mindful uh, and, you know, start feeling again because I'm very action orientated. So I do a lot of logical work and I, I'm in my head for most of the time. Uh, and that's not the best place to be as a man. You need to feel a bit more. So then I have to role model that myself. I have to go deep inside myself and try and figure out what it is to feel and to switch off. And um, those concepts around burnout are real, but you know, you have to give yourself time. And so I use the off season to try and you know, do some uh, deep work on myself, but get something in the diary for 2024. So it's there, so I have to do it. And um, there's a chance we might be going up a big hill in Peru in April, uh, it's called the King's Retreat. So you basically walk up the Inca Trail wow. um, with 15 other men, uh, with Craig White and his team. Uh, it's an unbelievable experience. So that's where I will try and grow next year. You'll have to tell me more about that. I'll tell you after it. Okay, okay. <laughs> but um, you know, in all our conversations too, and it's something you alluded to there now, you know, self-reflection, you know, it's a key part of the role. And you spoke to me before about this. It's not only what you're learning, but it's what you're unlearning. And obviously, since we last spoke, there's been a lot that's happened. Um, I mean, could you take us through what's been probably the biggest thing you've unlearned in the past 12 months, Dave? Yeah, so unlearning is a really important concept because you, know, you have to check if what you thought was right was right, and then you have to frame it against the environment that you're in. So your environment and society that you're in determines everything really about the quality of the relationships within um, you know, your life or your work, and then the quality of the relationship with yourself inside your own head. Right? So having to unlearn certain things is really important in the environment you're in. Now, I'm a European in America, right? So I have to unlearn, you know, this is the European way to do something around here. Now, but we're not really in America. <laughs> we're in Latin amalgamation of, you know, Miami um, and Florida and um, Orlando. So things are different because there's such a Latin context on everything. I have to unlearn how I view everything because uh, the Latin um, staff and the Latin coaches and Latin players, they've had a different formative experience than I have. And what I might think are UEFA level standards. They might think, well, this isn't how we do it in 
Rosario in Argentina or up a mountain in Mendoza. So I have to go to the other side to try and understand how they see things. And now, medicine should be black and white. Injuries <laughs> should be black and white, but yeah. they're not. So I have to spend time understanding that otherness. So I have to unlearn my, this is the UEFA way to do a thing. Um, and that's, I spent a year um, sharpening my saw. But my first year, I just spent most of my time trying to figure out, you know, what is the otherness of what I'm experiencing? It's really rewarding to view it through somebody else's lens, not your own. Yeah, and probably there's no better or more favorable culture than I would say the Latin one that has such indelible impacts that you can actually go deep into. And, you know, I would say, again, speaking to Yanni about this, I mean, you, we mistake perception for vision the whole time, but perception is so much more when it comes down to sense making. I just find these little nuances. I spoke with Guillaume Balgay, in fact, he was in this chair yesterday, the night before bloody Argentina played Mexico on the night of the World Cup. It's, you know, a make or break game, and it's not exactly ideal prep, but it was, you know, what it was. Lionel Messi speaking, having Mate for six hours with Rodrigo to Paul. Like, again, you just, just because you can't measure the benefit of something, yeah. doesn't mean it's intangible or no, no. unrewardable. No, know? and in Latin culture, it's so important to just sit there and break bread together and have Mate and have your friends around. And um, we're doing this groundbreaking thing with Orico, which is the biomarker um, testing where we check the players' bloods for recovery. Now, Orico embedded themselves with Uruguay at the World Cup and wow. they gave us some insights on you know uh, what the stress of a world cup is on the player's body but the one thing i took away from it was the suarez effect on the uruguay national team he basically just kept everything going within that group and the cavani's there there's big players within that group but he uh, my friend who was there uh, embedded with them he just said look these guys just they just love each other you know, they just love him. They just love having him around. They just sit around for five, six hours, have a mat day and having a chat. Now, in Europe, the sports scientists will probably come in and say, you have to go to your bed. Yeah. Stop having that mat day. Yeah. Drink that water. You know, we're going to we're going to close this room. But in um, in Latin cultures, it's completely different. Sports scientists is probably sitting there with them having a mat day. Crazy. And you know, what? before we wrap up, I have to say, like, uh, for anyone listening, anyone watching as well, you'll see from Dave, like you're certainly a personality that's larger than life. And I would say football is all the better for having more people like you in it. And I've never asked you this before, but I'm just curious because you've been embedded in the game for so long at various levels. What brings you joy from the game itself? Um, oh, yeah, you know, Dave Brailsford used to say, when they won a race, he'd be so relieved because he didn't lose the race, mm -hmm. right? So I often think about it myself, like what is it about every fixture or being in every dressing room or what is it? And you know, I, I go around and give everybody a big handshake after a game and I'm just like, the, the way you've committed yourself to this and the way you've like w gone as a warrior through the wall for this group in every dressing room that I've ever been in. The fact that you've been able to do this is so rewarding. And it's almost their sacrifice, those 11 players or 15 players, whoever play. You know, for me, I'm like, wow, that was an amazing experience to watch this athlete do that. Then I step back and I watch all the staff and all the sacrifices they've done and all like people not seeing their family so much. And you look back at them on their journeys and you're so proud that they're experiencing this as well. You go and look in the coach's eyes and he's still locked in to, you know, and then he has to go and give a press conference about something, give him a big handshake and say, look, 
that was amazing congratulations on another victory you know because it's so hard to win i remember breda hangeland told me in um fulham we beat uh, spurs one nil in white hart lane and i was like wow and he was like wow to win a game in white hart lane one nil and you could just see how much it meant to him mm. i was like oh my god brother this is amazing you're so proud of this victory yeah and some people call it three three point lane because it, it can be easy to win there but that moment i realized that athletes you know they every 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 victory everything means so much to them so just to share that journey with them that's what actually motivates me just to be a passenger on their journey it's unbelievable for me I so that's what uh, that's what gets me out of bed in the morning creating positive emotion for others yeah that's simple it's it's amazing and i think it speaks volumes to you as a person but Again, for anyone that's watching or listening, we are joined by an audience here as well. So I'm just going to cast the microphone aside and hear any questions from anyone here in the room about anything Dave has raised. Yeah, so mental models can be really helpful for everybody. If you can find things that work for you, it can like you can then find parts of a story that makes sense to you, and then you can view it through an organizational lens, or through a group lens, or through you know a unit lens, or through your lens, or somebody else's lens. Right. So you have to figure out which all the actors are in in this mental model. Right. Some things that happen in there are going to be logic, things that make sense in your head. Some parts of it are going to be about your heart, you know, yeah. the feeling of it, right? So you can write those things. What really happened? What just happened here? That was extremely logic. No, no, that was, that was emotional and chaos. So you can write down those things about what happened. And then what you try and do in the center is you're like, what are the things that we agreed on? What are the hard facts that we agreed on? How are we going to show up? What are our standards? You know, are we capable and who's going to bring it? Do we have enough capacity? What do the organizational structures do? You know, um, what's the story we told ourselves about today or the, the game we're going to go into? For a coach who might be listening, what were the principles that we said we were going to follow in the game? Or what was the phase we were going to try and open up or over, um, overload the opponent? All those different things you put down the center. And when you sense make, right, the logic and the heart, you, know, every, you have to figure out what happened. What happened here? that model can be really really interesting because you want to go back and check you know was this look or did we intentionally do some things that we described in the center mm. and then the emotion got us over the line or the logic got us over the line right and then what you should be doing then is you iterate every time what worked you know and you want, want to remove look as you get closer to the end and in what it takes to win is that you will become you know focus on what matters most so as you get to the finish, finish line, as you get to like conference finals and MLS finals, there shouldn't be any luck anymore. You're definitely gonna need a bit of emotion and you hope you're gonna be a bit logical. And when you sense make, you can traffic light yourself and say, yeah, that worked. That was at the standard we needed. And um, we got a bit too emotional there, but you know, we needed the emotion to get the group focused um, and uh, we did everything we agreed on, right? So if you can do that um, as a sense making tool, then you'll know that you've reduced uh, look 
uh, in the equation because there's still a lot of luck. It's pretty class. Pretty good. I got a question. Um, stinky fish model. Yeah. How do you identify an individual growth moment versus a cultural change from someone's a sticky point that someone mentions? Um, so you have to get everybody to describe, you know, how they feel. So it's you know they own it, and we give them some stories, and one of them is a famous one, which is like, what do you tell your wife when you go home, right? If they can trust you, and they can tell you what they tell their wife when they go home, that's a huge moment. Now it's a safe organization. So now they have a feeling that they can grow past that. Now if that sticking point is always there, and it just can't go away, that might be because of a, a formative period in their life, or it might be because of like a relationship at work that isn't at the level that they need. That person usually has to do the work themselves. Now what we do is we actually supply them with um, uh, like uh, executive coaches or online experts or emotional intelligent experts. So if someone gets bogged down in something in their stinky fish, then we give them the tools to basically go and do, we call it doing the work, go and do the work. When they've done the work, that can become a moment of growth. Yeah? Um, and if they uh, have that moment of growth, then hopefully we say, you've parked your car, right? As long as you've parked your car and you come into work, you shouldn't bring it with you. you know, the, the baggage doesn't belong to work. Uh, the baggage is in your car. So uh, we're there to support people on that journey too. Simple, actionable, concise. I think there's so much gold to be mined from this podcast for anyone listening back and really, really attentive to the finer details. But for me, as you know, Dave, I have the height of respect for you. And this has only been a second iteration. I hope there's many more to come on the show. But for all those listening now, as, and as you know yourself, has this closing tradition on the Loaded and Podcast, I'm going to switch the question a small bit. For those slightly bit inspired by your journey today at Even and want to know a little bit more about yourself and want to replicate what you've done as a key cultural architect, what would be the one bit of gold you'd leave them all right, from this yeah. podcast? So let's say it again. You've got to do the work, right? You have to know yourself before you know your team. Right? So if you do the work on yourself and you tune into your own emotional intelligence and who you're going to be under pressure as a leader, who you are at work and who you are at home, who you are when the lights go off, are you still authentic to yourself, if you're values led, if you do the work, know yourself, know your team, then you can grow your team. And if you're going on a leadership journey, you know, you have to get people to follow you because you're always a follower yourself. So I'm following other people but my team have to be willingly following me. And for that, they have to see me as being credible. So if you do the work yourself and you understand who you are, then I think it's a, it's a great bit of an insight to go on that journey. And obviously Craig White is the man who uh, looked inside my soul with me and that helped me back in 2017 go on this journey. So um, I would highly recommend that if you're interested in this type of stuff, you check out Craig White. I'll have to attach that in the show notes below. But David Cosgrave, it's been an absolute pleasure. Hopefully we can complete the hatch or who knows, maybe back in that Nakara sometime. Yeah, thanks for the welcome.